0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. That's their founding mission statement. And maybe you're saying, like, I don't even know my alma mater's mission statement. All right, let's, let's try to let's help you out a little bit more. Founded in 1936, this university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and rooted all its policies and practice in a Christian worldview. This school served as a bastion of academic excellence and Christian distinction. Still don't know it yet? It's fine. Liberty University, we got some guesses. Well, this mission statement is not the mission statement of Liberty University. It's not, yes, bingo, it's Harvard University, yeah. Uh, Author Peter Greer in his book Mission Drift says this, today Harvard is an incredible institution with an unmatched reputation but it no longer resembles its founding and just a few years ago the former president of Harvard Larry Summers said that divinity has in no way shaped neither his personal nor professional life in any way. So some people, some clergy in New England early on saw this drift that Harvard was going on. So they gathered together funds. They started fundraising, and they started their own school. Said, okay, Harvard's slowly going the way of the Buffalo. We're going to start a school that's going to stay firm and faithful. So they named it after the guy who gave the most money. His name was Elihu Yale. Yeah, so Harvard and Yale were originally started as schools that were set to train ministers of the gospel, and today they don't do anything. They're not resembling that mission statement at all. And I'm not here today to de- bemoan Harvard or Yale. I, listen, I'm a New Englander. I will never badmouth New England outside of New England, okay? I, I love my hometown. The socks are wicked good. Tom Brady's beautiful man. All right. Like I will never, I'm not here to badmouth Harvard. What I am here to do is ask a question. How does this happen? How does a school that starts one way end up 380 years later completely unrecognizable? While this may seem serious, though, James is doing the exact same thing to the, his readers, but it didn't take the church 380 years to shift its mission. See, it only took the church 20 years, and James is writing saying, hey, guys, you're missing the point. You're headed off course. See, Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and 20 years later, the church is in danger of losing the gospel, of losing its mission. And so James is writing. He sets up chapter two as a sort of midterm exam for his readers. He's saying, hey, everything that we've talked about before this, let's pause for a second. Let's see how we're doing. And so, uh, the verse that Matt ended on last week is actually a great header for what we're going to be looking at today. The last verse of chapter one is kind of the grading rubric through which James is going to grade his midterm exam to his students who are failing. This is what he says. He says, Pure religion, pure religion before God the Father is this to care for widows and orphans and to keep yourself unstained by the world. And now James is saying, How are you doing? Are you unstained by the world? do you care for the vulnerable? See, James is addressing an issue here that gets at the heart of the gospel. When we first read this passage, it may just sound like James is trying to address seating arrangements and fashion, but he's actually addressing a far more serious problem, a problem that threatens to derail the church. That problem is favoritism. Favoritism isn't just Petty, it's not just impolite, it's actually rooted in a misunderstanding of the gospel. And James is saying, if churches continue to practice favoritism, you will lose the gospel. He, he, favoritism is kind of, it's, it's the word the NIV uses, so it's the word I'm using now, but the original Greek word is this, it's to receive the face of someone. So it's to look at someone and to judge their worth just by looking at them. And James says this isn't just a polite, this isn't a manners issue, this is a gospel issue. If you practice discrimination, if you practice favoritism in your local church, you will lose the gospel. That's the problem. We're looking at that today. But, and I say this, a very big but. James' solution to this problem of losing the gospel, of mission drift, is the gospel. This is, James, this is where we're going today. James gives us, I think, the most powerful verse in the whole epistle to root ourselves in the gospel. This is what he says. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So that's where we're going today. If you decide to cash out right now, I hope this is all you've heard from this sermon. This is the main point that James is trying to make today. Let your life be so overwhelmed by the mercy of God that you don't practice favoritism. So that's where we're headed. We're going to first look at favoritism and see what a problem it is, and then we're going to look at the solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to say to you just for a minute, you may be thinking like, hey, Craig, the church has a pretty ugly history with discrimination, whether that was silence in the 1950s when it came to segregation, or whether that was the church's all-out Uh, participation in slavery. And I know, I see that. It's an ugly stain. But I want you to see this morning, if you're not a Christian, that those Christians who were acting that way were doing so in spite of Christianity, not because of Christianity. And the solution is beautiful. The solution is God's mercy towards people who show favoritism. And I want you to see the beauty of Christ. And I want you to repent and believe. That's what if you're not a Christian, that's the invitation to you today. I want you to see discrimination. Yeah, it's it's a problem, but James says it's a stain from the world. It's not the church. It actually threatens to derail the church. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I want you to I want to bolster your confidence. I want you to be strong in your confidence of the mercy of God. The way to do better as a Christian isn't to just white knuckle and say, I'll do better. I won't show favoritism. I won't show favoritism. Oh, whoops. No, the way to do, the way to grow as a Christian is to fight to believe the gospel. And as you believe the gospel, you, and as that mercy just flows into your life, that mercy will overcome the judgment that you dump on other people. So that's where we're going today. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray, Okay. This is James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all, For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit a murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the the life-giving message of your word. God, there is life on the pages of Scripture, Lord. God, I pray that your word would just go out like a wildfire and just captivate our hearts this morning. Your word would transform us. God, I pray that we would all grow deeper in our knowledge and our confidence of the mercy that you have toward us sinners, God. God, I pray that favoritism would not be a stain on Story City Church, Lord. I pray that the gospel would saturate us so that we don't show favoritism. Lord, keep us in the gospel and do that through your word. Yes, all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've made kind of this crazy claim that James is giving his readers a sort of midterm to say, hey, you guys are missing the point. But where do I get that? I need to set a little bit of the setting for you. So James was written to uh, a church that had a very uh, diverse audience. We know that throughout the book. Uh, James writes in chapter 1, giving advice to poor people. It's also advice to rich people as well. Uh, And then he even writes in chapter 5, verse 4, saying that um, if you're in the church and you're poor, uh, all you have to do is cry out to God. This is what James says to some of the congregants uh, in the church. He says, hey, I know that some of you are mowing the lawns of rich people and they're not paying you. So cry out to God for mercy. So you see, there's this broad diversity in the congregation to which James is writing. There's rich people and there's poor people. And so there's some people in this congregation who for whatever reason, uh, they started a planning committee and they said, hey guys, I have an idea for how to get our church financially stable. Here's what we're gonna do. Every time a rich person comes into the church, we're gonna, and a poor person comes in together, we're gonna humiliate the person the poor person, in front of the rich person so that that rich, that bolsters the rich person's ego and they'll like being here. They're like, hey, this is a pretty great spot. Like, this is really nice. Like, I'm better than everybody here and they'll give us lots of money. We'll balance our budget. We'll be able to have like a great youth ministry. This is gonna be awesome. That's how, we're, that's what we're gonna do. I don't know who was on the planning committee that did that, but that's what's happening in the James addresses in chapter two. And he's not saying that that's just rude. Hey, that's not nice. He's making it a gospel issue. He's saying, if your church functions like that, you're going to lose the gospel. You're going to derail the mission of the church. And he gives us three reasons why favoritism will derail the gospel. And the first reason that favoritism derails the mission of the gospel is because favoritism, it devalues the glory of the gospel. And I get this, from verse five, when James reminds his listeners of the God, he says, listen, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So he's reminding his his readers the identity of the people they're discriminating against. He's like, hey, this is what happened. He starts this chapter by saying, hey, Jesus Christ is the glorious one. He's glorious and he left his home in heaven to come and rescue us poor, wretched sinners. We didn't have anything to offer God. God wasn't needing us. He did this out of a motivation of love. He, He came and he rescued us. And so he takes these sinners who don't deserve anything. They're wretched, they're bankrupt, and he makes them, by by their faith in Jesus Christ, when they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, he makes them heirs of the kingdom of God and rich in faith. So he makes them royalty. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, in God's eyes, you are royalty. Not because of anything you did, but because of God's mercy. And so now, somebody who in God's eyes is royalty strolls into your church, and you know what you say? Ah, yeah, but we like their shoes. Like, she's got chucks on in Saint Laurent. Like, I, you, I don't care where you go. Like, we, this is what's glorious. See what's happening here? This is a glory problem. James' audience is saying, God, we know what the gospel is. We know what you do. We know how you transform sinners. We've got, we've got, a, budget, we've got a budget to balance here. We need money, God. This is more glorious than this, and so we're going to turn away from your plan, and we're going to take matters into our own hands. This has nothing to do with the gospel. This communicates a false gospel. It also communicates lies about who God is. See, like it or not, because you're in church, people are going to look at you and say, well, that's what God is like. And so when James is, uh, the people James is writing to are acting this way, people are looking at them and saying, that's what God is like? God's pretty mean. And, but this is totally contrary to everything Scripture says about who God is. Scripture, this word for, um, it's partiality in the Greek. The word partiality is used all throughout the Bible to describe one person, God. God is impartial. It says it again and again and again. God's also not just impartial though. God, Listen to what God's heart toward the poor. The Old Testament calls him the father of the fatherless. Jesus, when he comes to earth, he hangs out with lepers and uh, poor people, beggars, and he tells his disciples, hey, when you throw parties, invite those people who can't give anything back to you because I want you to communicate what I'm like. And then Paul, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says this, hey, don't forget to care for the poor. That's the very thing I'm eager to do. So God's plan, God has always had a close-knit relationship with The poor. Why? Why is that? Well, have you ever wondered why there aren't any trendy, hip churches in trailer parks? Why there's no fad churches in that bad neighborhood you're thinking of? It's because when you suffer, when the only dad you know comes home once a month and beats your mom and then your sister's doing drugs, you start to ask tough questions. You don't care about the church's coffee. You don't care about the lights. You're like, hey, is there justice in the world? What does God think of me? And that's what James is saying. These are the people who the world has just dumped on them. They know the injustice of the world, and they have turned to God for his justice, and you turn your backs on them. This is not a light matter. This is a huge deal. When churches show discrimination, they are acting out against god this is and that's not don't take my word for that that's proverbs 14:31 proverbs 14:31 says this whoever oppresses the poor insults his maker God closely identifies with the poor and his gospel is that he takes people who are poor in his eyes and he makes them rich. He takes people who are bankrupt before him and he makes them heirs of the kingdom of God. And we look at that and we say, no, thank you. I'd rather have a nice car. That is devaluing the gospel and it's threatening to to derail the mission of the church. But that's not the only thing favoritism does. The second thing that favoritism does, the second way it threatens to derail the mission of the church is that favoritism can't and won't transform anyone. You see, here's what's happening. It's very clear throughout this book, there's little hints of it, that rich people are tormenting the poor people. James even says that in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, hey, when you have that guy who's mowing your lawn and you don't pay him, God sees that. So these people are being tormented by the rich people, and they, they may just be trying to get it to stop. So they act preferentially, like, hey, we're going to show you a preferential treatment here so that it'll stop. But what, what does James remind them of? Hey, th- you've been doing this, but aren't these the people that are dragging you to court? Aren't, aren't they the ones that, yeah, they don't love God more. They're actually still blaspheming his name. So you see, you, you, tried, you tried to alter the method and get a different result But you ended up with an even worse result. See, this is what the the readers of James had to learn the tough way. What you win them with, you win them to. See, my parents' generation uh, had to learn this as well. There was a movement, and this is a very broad movement, and I don't mean to criticize anyone, but my parents' generation had a movement of churches called Seeker Sensitive Churches. And there were a lot of great things that came out of the Seeker Sensitive Church. However, though, one of the founders of that church recently said in an interview that it doesn't work, doesn't make people love God more. This is what the ugly side of the seeker-sensitive movement sought to do. Hey, people come to church, and, and, and they don't want to hear about sin, and they don't want to hear about the cross and all that kind of nasty stuff, so let's just tell them what they do want to hear. Let's get them involved, and it'll be kind of like a fake it till you make it. Maybe one day they'll just poof, and they'll be super godly. Who knows? We'll try it. And we tried it, and it didn't work. And um, it didn't work because showing preferential treatment to someone, altering your message to cater to someone is never going to transform anybody. St. Augustine once said this, if you have a God who doesn't offend you, you probably don't have the God of the Bible. You're worshiping yourself. See, favoritism is just... Fanning the egos of people who come to your church, saying, okay, hey, yeah, you like that? Sure, God likes that too. That's fine, I don't know, we'll figure it out. Hoping to get a result that never comes. See, and um, Christian philosopher Jamie Smith points this out. He realized this while he was watching the show True Detective. He realized that when you try to offer someone something that you think they want, you're actually going to miss the point of what they actually really even want. Jamie Smith says maybe the problem with catering to people's preferences in church of like, hey, we're not gonna say anything that offends you because you know, this is what you really want actually misses what people really need. And he got this from Russ Cole, who's Matthew McConaughey's character in True Detective. Uh, Russ Cole is really good at getting criminals to confess their crimes. And so a character asks him, hey, how did you do that? How do you get people to confess? And this is what Matthew McConaughey says, and I'm not gonna imitate him, but... Look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. So popular culture sees this. Popular culture says, hey, there's something wrong with me, and I want a place to resolve this problem. And churches have that answer. We say, hey, if you confess your sins and trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. But instead, we're like, oh, that's offensive. Let's just just have a really nice program. We'll have really nice programs, and we won't offend anybody. But Smith is saying, you're going to miss what people really want. They may not even know it. Listen to what Smith says. What if the opportunity to confess is precisely what we long for? What if an invitation to confess our sins is actually the answer to our seeking? What if we want to confess our sins, even if we didn't realize it until given the opportunity? In other words, what if confession is unwittingly the desire of every broken heart? In that case, extending an invitation to confession would be the most sensitive thing that we could do, a gift to seeking souls. This is where you start to see James' powerful statement seeping in. He can't even contain it. He's excited. He says, hey, mercy triumphs over judgment. You're trying to, you're judging people thinking you're going to get this result, thinking it's going to grow your church. You're actually killing your church. But if you extended the offer of God's mercy, that's what people really want. They know something is wrong with the world. All is not well in Tinseltown. They know they're broken. And if you give them an opportunity, hey, if you confess your sins to Jesus, here's a promise from God. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you. You can leave here today cleansed. If we just show you favoritism and give you what you want, you'll leave here today the same, maybe worse. And that's what James is saying. He's saying mercy is way more powerful than judgment. It gives you better results. So we're getting to the good news, but we have one more piece of bad news here. The last thing that judgment does is it actually, the reason that favoritism doesn't work is because, and it's not a virtue, it's a sin that deserves the judgment of God. Now, I want, I want you to keep this in mind. James is speaking to believers here, and he's reminding them, hey, judgment comes on people who show favoritism. And he's not doing that to say, hey, worry about judgment. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about God judging you. But what he is saying, this is totally inconsistent with the results you want from God. You want to live a life that pleases God and obeys Him? Favoritism ain't it. And so he gives this, uh, this ex- explanation of it in verses 8 to 11. And this passage has confused Christians forever. And I don't ex- I don't, I'm not going to solve your confusion this morning but what I think this passage is saying is this. This is what Je- Jesus said in Luke's gospel. He said this. He said, love is at the heart of the law. So if you love your neighbor, you're going to obey all those rules that I gave you about your neighbor. So you're not going to sleep with his wife, you're not going to kill him, and you're not going to steal his cow because you love him. So worry about love. Love is the heart of the law. But when you turn the law into, oh, this is just a checklist of things I need to obey, if I, and if I get most of them right, God's going to be pleased with it, James is saying, you've totally missed the point. Favoritism doesn't love someone. So what, what his audience, I believe, is saying is this. Hey, we may show favoritism. That's not good. But look at all the other good things we have. We've got a great program here. We've got good theology. Uh, we have great coffee. And James is saying, but you don't have love, so you've missed the point. See, love fulfills the law. And so, like, so imagine my neighbor. Imagine if I said to my neighbor, hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't sleep with your wife and I didn't steal your car, but I killed your brother. Hey, two out of three ain't bad, right? That's what James is saying here. Like, You can't have that attitude when it comes to obeying God. This is a, he's after your heart. And favoritism works against that. It's headed in the wrong direction. So that's the bad news. Here's the good news, and it's really, really transformative mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumphs over judgment is found throughout the Roman Empire to describe gladiators who were standing over their dead enemies. That's what mercy triumphs, mercy kills. Judgment, and James is saying if you wanna be a church that stays on mission, if you wanna keep the gospel central, you need to acquaint yourself to grow comfortable with, to grow confident in the mercy of God. You need to apply God's promises to you so that you believe his promises about mercy, so that you love those promises, and that that shapes your identity. That's the first thing that this does. James says this. He says, hey, you need to have an identity that's shaped by the mercy of God. He says that starting in verse 12. Listen to what he says. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. This is what he's saying. He's, he's using this uh, idea, mercy triumphs over judgment, as a ground for everything he says, and it does double duty. So, the first way that mercy triumphs over judgment is this, he's saying this God's mercy triumphs over God's judgment in your life, and that gives you a new identity. What does that make you? It makes you free. So, here's, here's the future for you if you're a Christian. Here's the future God is, is not your judge, He's your Father and he, he's pleased with you, he loves you. And James is saying, live and act like you believe that, because it's true, he's saying lean into that more. Let it shape your identity. See, a lot of us think of the gospel as kind of like the ABCs of Christianity. Like, oh yeah, I, I believed in the gospel, that's what, you know, I'm a Christian, and now what do I gotta do? I gotta, I gotta work. I gotta just be a good person, I gotta obey the Bible, I gotta read the Bible every once in a while, I gotta go to church, I gotta do all these things, that's what good Christians do. That idea though is not actually what the Bible communicates what good Christians do. the the Scripture says that after you become a Christian, the rest of your life becomes about an identity. It becomes about believing and fighting to believe that identity, and then from that you live out your life. So what's our identity here? It's that in Christ, God's mercy is more powerful than his judgment. So there's judgment that we all deserve for sin. Sin is evil and wicked, and God is a good judge and will punish it. But when we trust in Christ, God's judgment God's mercy overpowers his judgment. So the loudest voice in your life right now is not, oh, I messed up. God's upset with me. It's there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's mercy. God's mercy needs to shape your identity. You need to don't ever be ashamed or embarrassed about believing in God's promises. God wants you to lean into those promises. Not be stingy about it either. Really, God is glorified when we take his promises and trust them and let that shape how we live our life. You're not supposed to live your life with this low-grade stress. Like, uh, I, I think I'm okay with God, but we'll just, you know, live in a way that's kind of cautious so that at the end we're fine. Like, you don't, God doesn't want you to live on the fringes. God wants you to say, yes, I am undeserving. I deserve that judgment. But, Your mercy is way more powerful, and that is louder when it comes to who I am. So who am I? I'm someone who's shaped by the mercy of God, not his judgment. And then the second thing that James is doing here with that verse is he's saying, hey, mercy overcomes judgment, not just in your own life. It's not just God's mercy overcoming God's judgment. It's the mercy that you've received overcomes the judgment that you've given. I wasn't going to go there. Thank you. We're going. There. So, there's, I said this is like a midterm that James is doing. Uh, he's checking to see, hey, uh, are you caring for the vulnerable? Are you caring for the poor? Because when the Bible talks about the poor, it's not a number. Do you know that? It's not like, oh, you make 23,000, you're not poor anymore. Uh, no, it's, it's about vulnerability. And so, James is also doing this thing, hey, are, is your perception of the poor, is that being, cha- uh, cha- is that being shaped rather, by scripture, or is that being shaped by the culture around you? And so the passage that James is quoting, left and right, it's all over this chapter, to see if, he, if his followers really are being shaped by scripture, is Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is the passage about how to treat sojourners and aliens, Resident workers. And so this is what, listen to Leviticus 19. This is what it says hey, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So James says this. He's thinking in the box of Leviticus 19, and then he says this a person comes into your congregation with dirty clothes. I believe what James is doing here is he's saying, a migrant worker, a field worker, came into your church. What do you do? Scripture is really clear. We're supposed to have compassion on the foreigner and on the vulnerable. Now, here's what happens. Uh, I used to live in a city in L.A. County. I won't say the name of it to protect the guilty, but there were many day workers that would hang out on a certain street corner, and the city wanted to remove them because it was a stain on the city. And this is a complicated issue, but what's not complicated is our attitude toward those people. It should be one of compassion. So James is saying this. James is saying this. Hey, you're worshiping on Sunday morning, and someone who's an undocumented worker comes into your church. And they're dirty. And they smell like the field because they've been working. What should your response be? our first response should be this. It's to think about how vulnerable these people are. Have you ever thought about the vulnerability of someone who works every day, who's here illegally and doesn't have any recourse? So they work for someone all day and if that person doesn't pay them, have you ever thought about what they can do? Nothing. And James even addresses that in James 5.4. All they can do is cry out to God for mercy. I'm not trying to shift your political view. I'm not up here arguing for any kind of political view. I'm arguing up here that our perception and our, our perspective of people, of poverty, is shaped by Scripture, not by our upbringing, not by our politics, but by God's Word. So if you're here, and you're like, whoa, that's a complicated issue, all I invite you to do is look to Scripture. I want you to look at the, what does God say about this issue, and is that actually shaping my perspective of that? That's the other midterm that James is getting at. So that part was free, that... That was not not in my notes. All right. (laughs) So there's another way that mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's that uh, the people that we have ostracized, the people that we've excommunicated, those are the people that God so often goes after. Do you know where the church is declining right now in the world? In the West. Around Europe and around North America, churches are shutting down like crazy. Nobody's going to them, and they're just, we're just sitting around wondering, why? What's, what's happening here? But you know where the places in the world where the church is growing like wildfire? Rural China, Tehran, the Global South, the Middle East, Africa, the Philippines. Some of the poorest places in the world. So James' message is here today is, hey, if you don't embrace the poor, you're going to get left behind. This is where the gospel movement is moving. It's moving fast. That's where God is working, and we can't do anything to control that. My wife and I one time went to a church uh, somewhere in the USA, and it, it had, a, uh, it had a, a part of their name was the country club. They had the word country club in the name of their church. And we went there, and we were like the only people under 30. It was a bunch of old people wondering where all the young people were. Well, it's, hey, you turned this church into a country club, you're not reaching out to the poor, you're going to kill it. I have a, a friend of ours, my wife and I have a friend who he, he, lives in, uh, he lived in Jerusalem for a while. And um, he, one Sunday, uh, his church was really diverse. He had people at his church uh, who were there from Turkey, from Armenia. He had Palestinian uh, Arabs there. He had Jews. Um, there were Chinese, Russian, Americans. The whole world was there. And one day, a UN peacekeeper... Came into his church and was totally floored. How is this happening? How did you? We can't even get these people to sit down in a room together. Here they are worshiping God together. How did you do that? The gospel. Jesus mercy triumphs over judgment. These people haven't been able. They haven't been able to get along for centuries. But you know what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we don't show favoritism, we communicate Jesus won. This church isn't our mission. We're here on mission for Jesus to accomplish his plan, his purpose, and his will. That's what this church is here for. When we turn it into a country club, and we, okay, we don't want to offend anyone. We only want people who are like us. We just want to be comfortable. Don't be surprised when in 40 years, it's just you and me sitting around saying, where is everybody? So the message that James has for you today is the only way to avoid this, the only way to love your neighbor well is to be more overwhelmed by the gospel. The gospel will transform people who show favoritism into people who show mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for its power. Lord, I pray that um, we would let your word shape everything we do, Lord, from our worship to the way we interact with people throughout the week, even the mundane, the grocery store, Lord. God, I pray that we would not be a church marked by favoritism. God, I I don't believe we are. I look out here and I see people that love people who are different from them and I see that as fruit of the gospel that you are working at Story City Church. Lord, I pray that we would all move into a deeper and more rich and more intimate understanding of the gospel. God, I pray that you would uh, heal us, that we would confess our sins and find life, in the forgiveness that you offer and that we would extend that offer to other people. It's all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Mm